0: Welcome back to the Library Talks podcast, the Sutton Libraries podcast. On this week's episode, we're joined by local author Gordon Thomas, uh, who's the author of five novels, beginning with the Madrid series, The Harpist of Madrid from 2011, The Emerald of Burgos from 2014, Expulsion from 2017, and Return to Madrid in 2019. He recently moved away from this series with It Began in Florence, a novel about British composer Ethel Smythe that was released in 2021. Gordon spent a long and varied career working as a scientist and for the Home Office uh, and only began writing books after retiring in the early 2000s. After a few postponements and delays I was delighted to finally welcome Gordon to the second floor of Sutton Central Library uh, and really enjoyed this chat. Gordon's a natural storyteller uh, and this was a fascinating conversation covering how Gordon came to writing novels in later life, his inspiration, uh, advice for new writers and uh, writing historical fiction itself. We ended our conversation by considering the links between art and science as we continue to look ahead to Sutton's Steams Ahead. I'll be back at the end for more info on this. Until then, enjoy.
1: It all started quite a long time ago because um, I'm a member of an international conference committee on security technology, mm-hmm. It's called the International Carnahan Conference on Security Technology. And um, back in 1999, would you believe, it was held in Madrid. And a friend of mine lives in Madrid and he was on the committee, still is, and he he asked me if I would help him. Well, at the time I was working in the home office and um, I said I'd be delighted to help. Anyway, I thought if I'm gonna help a guy in Madrid, I needed to learn Spanish, so uh, I eventually got to A level, and um, in fact, I did A level Spanish in this building. Oh really? Oh (laughs) wow! Okay. (laughs) Um, And um, I, uh, one of the things you have to do for A level language, is to speak in the language about a subject of your choosing, really. And I've always been interested in music. I was one of the original Elvis fans, <laughs> and, wow. uh, and um, mainly, but mainly classical music. And um, I thought what I'd do is look up Spanish composers and find out as much as I reasonably could about a whole range of Spanish composers from the sort of 16th century onwards. And I came across this composer called Juan Hidalgo de Palanco. And, um, he was one of the few that I came across that there were no books about. So I thought, well, when I retire, um, I'll write. A, I'll write a biography of this character, who seemed really interesting. He wrote the first operas in Spanish. And he was a harpist for the King of Spain.
0: Well, surprising, there hadn't been more written
1: about him. Yeah, he's an incredible character. Anyway, I. Um, did, I spent once I retired which was in 2003 20 years ago I um, started researching on the guy and I I wrote to the Spanish National Library the Hispanic Society in America did a lot of research on the internet and so on and um, I found out a lot about him um, for example he was a member of the Spanish Inquisition would oh, you well. believe <laughs> but he wasn't he wasn't on the He wasn't one of those hand-and-out death sentences. He was kind of a scribe, um, a secretary, a note-taker. Anyway, I started writing this, planning a biography about him. And I thought, this isn't going to come to much. So um, I decided to write a novel based on his life, a biographical novel based on his life. And um, eventually I got it um, published in 2011. Yeah, about twelve years ago, and um, it's it sold really well. Probably about three thousand copies overall, which isn't too bad. Not Absolutely. not a bestseller because you need about five thousand yeah. for that. But it sold quite a good number. Mm-hmm. And um, well, one of the one of the things I thought I'd also do was I. I funny enough, I invented this character in the book called Esmeralda, and um, it turned out in those days. The um, Spanish fathers were very embarrassed about telling their sons and about facts of life and so on. Right. So what they used to do was send them along to these various ladies, whose occupations you can imagine. Okay. <laughs> and um, get an he said yeah, to get what you might call <laughs> properly educated. <laughs> so he sent his, he sent, and I'm pretty sure this would have happened in his case. He sent Juan Hidalgo, The father sent him along to. This woman, whose name was Esmeralda, and she—I made her into quite an interesting character because she was purely fictional. Mm-hmm. And after I, after about after I published this book and it had been out for about a year, I thought she'd make an interesting study for another novel. Mm-hmm. So I wrote a novel based on her life, which was purely a novel, it was just all invented. Mm-hmm. But I put it in the context of um, all sorts of interesting things. Um, I discovered this book. Um, about the spanish army written by a professor of a, u- a university in ohio and um, it turned out that one of the crucial sentences one, a, a little paragraph in this book said that the spanish army when it um, it, it used to go from um, genoa in italy mm-hmm. up to the netherlands uh, on a huge march about 700 miles because by then the english had wiped the spanish armada out from going up the channel and the only way they could get to, safely get to the to um to holland which was they which they the king was king of a, a large part of the netherlands at the time king philip IV. He, the fourth he the only way the army could get there was going by land And the Spanish army used to have this um, these women following them, you know, Mm -hmm. as it were, serving the army the um, one way and another, mostly mainly the other. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, Esmeralda fits in fitted into this, and you know, I invented a friend of hers, and it's quite a good novel, and it that sold quite well as well, actually. And it's called The Emerald of Burgos. Mm -hmm. Well, in fact, the first one is called the 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 novel about Hidalgo is called um, the Harpist of Madrid, yeah. and the other one is called um, the Emerald of Burgos, and I actually presented the library here with a copy of each. Yes, and so. I think they're on. I think they're still here. I'm not sure. They should be. Yeah. Imagine they yeah, should yeah. be. Yeah. Um, anyway, that um, those were the first two of the Madrid series, and then I thought one Christmas it occurred to me to write one based on um, Hidalgo's father. Um, who, from various things I read about Hidalgo, and the connections with the um, with the Inquisition, it made a lot of sense to think of his father as a spy. Mm-hmm. Because in those days, the King of Spain relied on spies. Yeah. So um, I made him a spy. I made him... Um, do a lot of work to work it was a time in the time the muslims were expelled from spain Mm -hmm. which was in 1609 it was the one of the first pieces of ethnic cleansing that ever Mm -hmm. took place in the world anyway this character gets information he goes to um, morocco to find out information about what's going on over there what the king is what the moroccans are doing with their army with the navy And he finds sufficient. He goes back to the king and gives him sufficient information to decide actually to expel the Muslims. Mm -hmm. So that's quite a brutal story, if you like. But it's a spy, and it's about how he becomes a spy, what he does, trained to become a spy, and all that. And then the fourth one was, um, and it's a prequel, as it were, to the Harpers of Madrid. But I've written each of them so they can be read completely independently. So you can read the last in the series or the first in the series. And it doesn't matter which one you read first. Then I wrote um, a fourth one, which um, actually someone suggested I write one. Towards the end of the Harpist of Madrid, the son, also called Juan, dies when he's at a university at a place called Alcalá de Mm Henares, which is about 30 miles to the east of Madrid. And he, the, obviously, uh, crucially upsets the family. The father's alive then, and obviously the mother. And the mother in, in the novel decides to go to Alcalá de takes a friend of hers to, um, this is after the husband dies, to investigate the death of her son. Did he die in natural circumstances? Was, you know, of an illness or something? Was he murdered? Did he commit suicide or what? And that is the story of the the last of the four books about Madrid, Mm -hmm. as it were, all the Madrid (coughs) series. And since then, I've kind of changed tack. Mm. Um, And I've written a book. I'm I'm still taking the composer side of it. I discovered this woman called Ethel Smythe, who's an English composer and was famous, actually, really famous, around the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th. Mm And she was an incredible woman. Anyway, I wrote a novel about her.
0: is this uh, the, It began in Florence. It began in Florence, that when you, yeah. yeah couple, that's the one. A couple of years ago.
1: A couple of years ago, yeah. Was
0: that a very conscious, like, in terms of moving away from the... Madrid I decided series? I'd
1: move away from Spain. Yeah. Yeah, I thought, you know, that's it for Spain. Mm-hmm. Let's do something different. Do you think you'll go back to it? Or? I don't know. That's an interesting question. Mm. One, I've still got one or two residual ideas about Spanish... Um, possibilities, um, but um, I'm, I'm, um, that's gone well. The um, it began in Florence. I mean, it, it's not sold a huge number, but um, probably about three or four hundred, which is still not, you know not too bad yeah. for a sort of amateur hobby yeah. hobby writer. But the good thing is where they're being sold. They're, I managed to sell twenty to Glyndebourne, um, the opera company. Oh, wow. Because they were performing one of Ethel Smythe's operas last year. Did it ten times. It's called The Wreckers. A fantastic opera it is. Unbelievable. And she wrote it with the guy she met in Florence. Um, This guy called Harry Webster, who was an utter genius at writing. A very, very clever man. Mm. Um, And they kind of fell in love. And um, it began in Florence, really, is about... The time in Ethel's life from when she met um, Harry Webster to when he actually passed passed on. He d- he eventually died of some sort of cancer, stomach mm. cancer, I think. So and that's gone quite well. And also, um, the Royal Albert Hall have got some oh, have awesome. got some for sale. Okay. Um, in fact, I've, I've got on pretty well with their sales manager up there, and we're going to meet up for lunch in a few weeks' time. Um, and they've already made an order of 40 of the next book I'm writing, which is about another composer. Okay. <laughs> called Anton Bruckner. Do you know about Anton Bruckner? I've heard the name, yeah. I, I... Yeah. He wrote these, well, he actually wrote 11 symphonies, but nine of them are numbers. Um, and um, this book I'm writing now is about Anton Bruckner. It's called Anton Bruckner The Making of Genius. Mm. Because there's no doubt he was a genius. He was, in my opinion, he's the best symphonist who ever lived. I mean, you may think I'm biased because I'm writing a book about him. But but I just love his symphonies. And I've been listening to his symphonies probably for... Since I was about 16 and went Mm. 17, you know, just before I went to university. And
0: Mm. do you write in kind of historical fiction? Do you feel a certain pressure to be kind of period accurate in the detail or do you see it as a kind of license to create your own world set in another time?
1: That's a very, very good question. What I try to do is that some authors write in the language of the time, mm. you know. I don't do that mm. because for, for this reason, that at the time, in, say in the middle of the 17th century or something like that, People used to speak a quite different way than we, than we do now. But those people who they were speaking to understood perfectly what they were saying. Right, yeah. But if you write in that sort of language now, us our, in our time, we find it a bit tricky to understand that yeah. language and its, and its implications and the subtleties of it. So, what I do is write in contemporary language. Mm. And lots of people have praised that approach because they can understand what I'm reading, you know, without any difficulty and can quickly get through one of my books without too much of a struggle.
0: I suppose the reader's relationship to what's being said would be that of someone who was there with them at the time.
1: Exactly right. Exactly right. And that seems to work, actually. Mm. Yeah. And the Albert Hall have ordered 40 copies in advance of this book on Bruckner. Well, the thing about Bruckner um, is that his 200th anniversary is on the 24th, sorry, the 4th of September, 2024. And there's no doubt, already I can detect it, you know, from the internet and so on, there's going to be a huge worldwide celebration mm. of Bruckner's life in 2024, around, you know, the autumn 2024. So what I'm trying to do is bring the book out for in time for that. And I've wrote, I'm over halfway through. Okay. Yeah, I've written about 100, 105,000 words. And I'm, I've, you know, so it's about halfway through. You tend
0: to write quite quickly, then.
1: Yeah, I write. I write fairly. I try and write. If I'm writing, I write a thousand words a day. Mm-hmm. And um, I, the latest book, for example, I, I've written. I write a 1000 I've written a thousand words today. Um, wow. And um, I mean, people like Stephen King write two thousand words a day, but mm. I don't. He does yeah. it for a living. <laughs> And he's made a fortune, yeah. out of course, which I haven't. But you know, I'm not doing it to make no, a of lot course. of money. I'm doing it really to um, certainly. cut... Well, in in all cases, I did it to to kind of bring publicity to Juan um, Eduardo Di Palanco to begin with. Yeah. And now, I, and I'm trying to the Ethel Smythe book that was trying to promote her works. And um, to su- I'm not sure whether it's worked, but funny enough, she is being played more now. Okay. Yeah, I went to a concert, uh, a recital, a couple of weeks ago in, in London where one of her works was played. It was um, a violin sonata. And um, I took copies of the book up there and sold nearly all of them. Oh, wow, that's yeah, great. So, <laughs> and the guy who organised the thing thought it was great to have a bit of a book event. Yeah. They'd never done that before. No, absolutely. And he thought, you know, to have a book event... A little recital where the authors chatting, going around chatting to people, they can chat to him. Yeah, was really a, not a good thing to do because he was a bit hesitant about it. Yeah, you, you can imagine, you know, what's this guy going to do? How is he going to present it and stuff?
0: I can see that working really well, and it worked a treat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Worked well. Um, so you mentioned your obviously your career previously wasn't as a writer, no, um, and you obviously you talked about how you came to write uh, the first book, but had in the sort of years previous throughout your career, were you writing on the side at all, or was it really something you no, did come to very no. long? No,
1: I mean, people often ask me, oh, it looks like you must have always wanted to write a novel, and the fact is I didn't. Mm. You know, it was only I never had any intentions of writing when I retired um, initially. In fact, um, I reserved a space at the back of my garage at home so I could do build a workshop there and do carpentry oh, okay. and stuff cabinet making yeah but i didn't do that (laughs) that that became (laughs) i just took to um i use that for a sort of storage now um and um i just i write a lot Mm. yeah do
0: you do you need like quite specific uh conditions to write well or can you someone that can just pick it up and go wherever i can write anywhere i mean this
1: morning for example my wife um, is a member of an upholstery class up at um, Headley Heath mm-hmm. in the Hedley village. And I sit in the cafe there. Well, she, I take her up there in the, her car. And um, I sit in the cafe for a couple of hours and bang away at the woods. Whatever people are doing there doesn't bother me. In fact, I've, I've got to know the people, you know, the owner and the People who work there and they kind of become part of the furniture almost. <laughs> it's a good yeah. skill
0: to have, I suppose, yeah. just being able to block I, out. Yeah, and I can if I'm
1: watching. I can, I can write <clears throat> sitting in the lounge with the television on. Yeah. I just get so into it, you know. That my wife, you know, she can be speaking and I may not even recognise what <laughs> she said. She Just sort of wake me up a bit out of it, you know. Yeah. So and it's quite handy that because some people demand. Absolute silence Mm-mm. to write but I don't, I can just once I get into the get it into my head that that's what I'm doing, it just, you know, I just seem to be able to do it mm. um, and
0: what do you get out of, as a writer, what do you get out of writing stories set in the past that you maybe wouldn't get from writing something that was set now, do you think?
1: I do enjoy history mm. I do enjoy uh looking at history. Um, funny enough, I used to be very interested in science fiction. Mm. when I, In my youth, I read a lot of science fiction. Um, and I've never really thought of writing a novel kind of in the present, as it were. Mm. Um, I kind of find niches that I think that might be good to write about.
0: Yeah. Are there any... Sort of historical periods or figures other than what you've already done or are currently working on that you've already got an eye on, kind of focusing on in future. Yeah, or? I
1: have actually. I've got, um, I've got my eye on a, an English queen. Mm. Um, I think her name is Emma, Queen Emma. Okay. I, I can't remember it for sure, but she was, um, she lived around um, the 12th century. Um, and was married at various times to two English, two different English kings, so that's one possibility. Mm-hmm. Another, another, and someone gave me that. Funny enough, people give me ideas. Right. Um, I've got a friend in Taiwan who I've, I've known through this conference I'm involved in, known mm-hmm. him for years, and um, there's a famous Taiwanese character called Sun Yat-sen. Who was really the founder of Taiwan, mm-hmm. in a way, in a way, um, because he, um, his, he did a lot of work um, to break down the corruption in old the, what, what one of the China China dynasties, mm-hmm. and this character he's kind of admired by the Chinese and the Taiwanese, and this character, this friend of mine. Said, write a novel about him. So actually I've done a lot of research on him. Okay. But I haven't got round to writing a novel yet. Because of, slightly because of the Bruckner distraction yeah. and the need to get that one into print before twenty twenty four. Yeah. Time limit on that one, I Yeah, suppose. that's yeah. right. I've got sort of a deadline on that. People one.
0: must see you as someone they can just impart these ideas and stories onto then if they know that you may go off and
1: Yeah, maybe. Yeah, he reckons, this friend of mine, he reckons if I I wrote one on Sun Yat-sen and got it translated into Mandarin Chinese, he said it would sell a million. Really? I guarantee it would sell a million, he says, because Sun Yat-sen is so popular. Yeah. And no one's, they've kind of made him almost a myth and no one seems to want to write a novel about him sort of untouchable untouchable yeah yeah, sort of an untouchable character but he says if you wrote a novel being you know English and one of the characters he he was very friendly with an Englishman um, an English doctor in fact (coughs) and he said um, you know if someone outside of Taiwan outside of China could get away with writing a book about him that others may not get away with quite
0: yeah it reminds me of um, the director. I think uh, I can't if the name escapes me. Directed the private life of Henry VIII. Said something along the lines of, uh, a, a "Sort of, basically, a foreigner is better equipped to direct a national film." In this case, he was talking about in Britain, coming from an outsider perspective, could you can be. bring something very different. Yeah, to could it could be. And maybe you don't have a a pre conception maybe um i don't know if is that something that's occurred to you in your previous books that you the freshness i guess that you're coming at it with is actually quite a helpful thing
1: i think you're right i do think you're right actually Mm. because um i'm sure that was the case with Juan hidalgo because um he he's written some amazing music and um he um it was largely forgotten you know, he wrote the first, did I, I think I said he wrote the first opera ever yes, written in yeah. Spanish. And it was an incredible opera. And his inspiration for it was just amazing in itself mm. because, um, um, you know, the painter Diego Velazquez, yeah. he, um, he went to Italy and bought some pictures and sculptures for the King of Spain. Um, that was, his, you know, he was sent out there to do that. And he came back with this picture um that inspired Juan Hidalgo to write the first opera wow. that he wrote. And that that was an incredible. that's a story in itself, really. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Um coming onto libraries specifically, um, have they played going way back, not necessarily just as an author, but have libraries played any significant role in your life maybe as a child even or
1: oh yeah i used to borrow books from libraries all the time yeah yeah when i was a kid because you know we grew up in the you know the 50s and 60s and not much money about then mm. so i used to use libraries a lot mm. yeah so the school library and library and you know public libraries there's a public library quite close to where i was at school mm-hmm. i used to borrow books from them yeah, you love, books have been a part of my life. I mean, I think I've got about two thousand books myself oh, well. in my study, yeah. all, all over the well, you know, all in bookshelves and stuff. Um, so, books have been a huge part of my life. Mm. I've never, I've never got rid of a book. No. <laughs> so <laughs> is uh, sounds a bit untidy. But um, there we
0: are. Is what you read in your sort of leisure time any? in any way sort of similar to what you're drawn to writing-wise, or do you use that as an, as an opportunity to read something completely different to what you'd write?
1: I generally read um, something different, but I don't, I don't waste my time, at least I don't think I do, uh, reading just, um, you know, just sort of low-grade stuff. I tend to read sort of classic novels mm. or... Um, I think that might be of, of direct interest to me um, and um, I um, I kind of learn uh, I've, I, I do read quite a bit I mean I think if you're an author you do need to read um, so I read quite a bit not necessarily novels mm-hmm. biographies maybe um, um and I've, I've i've read i've read quite a bit of stephen king i quite like his books yeah so i like his in fact i've kind of adopted slightly adopted but not you know not word for word kind of thing but i've i kind of like his style yeah of writing and what you're going to get on to talking about important books in my life yeah and one of them is a book written by stephen king mm. Um. it's called on writing ah uh, yes and that's
0: been that has actually been brought uh before by someone on this podcast has it really uh, yeah i think i i know well, quite well. a few people many people i've met who write really cite that as a big as a big it's been a instance. huge influence yeah. to me
1: actually a mm. massive um <clears> and um you know it kind of changed my writing life because i've read books like how to write a novel how not to write a novel yeah the idiot's guy to write a novel <laughs> you know, all that sort of stuff and none of it, none of it has been anything like as helpful mm. as on writing by Stephen King and and you know, the other people who've written these books about writing you've never heard of any of them Yeah. but St- Stephen King I, don't, I mean he's a multi, multi-millionaire isn't he I mean yeah, I don't know what he's absolutely. worth but he's um, a good luck to him, absolutely good luck to him I really admire him for what he does um and his books are written in a in a way that he's, he really respects his readers you know mm. he he treats his readers like he doesn't spoon feed them and he doesn't he doesn't patronize he just gets on with it and you know writes um what he wants to say and what what he wants people to read mm. um and he's been very popular, very good at that, you know. And I've kind of adopted his kind of approach, if you like, mm. to writing. Um, and there, I mean, there, if we can, if we want to talk about that for a bit now, um, there are three things he says do. And I've adopted all three of them. His, his first thing is: when you write a novel, you need a plan. Yeah. And um, so I always plan my novels, and uh, I just write a few sentences about each chapter, not a big detailed plan. And um, then I um, then he says, because you your plan is a plan. It's not a it's not something you have to comply with. No. It's just your. Th- I mean, like the Harpers of Madrid. I think I planned to write about twenty eight chapters, end up with thirty one, or something like that. You know. Mm-hmm and my latest book i planned it it should come to 36 chapters but i think it's going to i've decided not to write night not to take it to the bitter end when the character dies i'm going to finish off it as one of his major successes i think sort of finish on a positive yeah so that's going to have fewer chapters i think than i planned originally but it's still going to be quite a hefty book yeah um so that's quite important to do the plan um then he says um Write, try and write a fixed number of words a day when you're going to write. You know, don't write, don't necessarily have to write every day, but when the days you are writing, write a a target number of words and get as close to it as you can or beat it. Yeah. And he he writes 2000 a day, as I've said, but I I write a thousand a day, which takes about two hours if I'm really on the ball. Yeah. Um, So that's good. And he says, you know, write what comes into your head. In other words, just write one word after another, Mm. you know, a bit like building a brick wall. The bricklayer doesn't know exactly, he doesn't plan where the next brick is going to go. So you just, you know, just write as it comes into your head. And that way, uh, I've never had writer's block. Some people sit at their computer or, or put a pen in their hand and they just get stuck. Well, if you just write the next word that comes into your head, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're, you're okay. writing something. you're writing something, <laughs> yeah. it may be rubbish and you may have to do quite a lot of editing, but on the whole, you know, you yeah. are writing. At least you have something to yeah. edit. You know. Yeah, at least um. you've got something to write, but not a blank sheet of paper. Yeah. You know, What you don't want is a blank sheet of paper. Mm. So I've always got something to edit and um, I'm sure what I'm writing now will take a fair bit of editing. It's ended up. It's going to end up much longer. The, the chapters are longer than I meant them to be. Yeah. But there we go.
0: Have you sort of changed as a writer since you first started? I mean, it's obviously a fairly re- relatively recent that your first book was published. Do you think in that time you have changed in a noticeable way?
1: I think I have. Yeah, I think I have. I think um, I leave out things that are sort of um obvious background stuff mm-hmm. i mean when i first wrote um the Harpers of madrid for example i disco- i had a i discovered a map of madrid as it was in the 16th century mm-hmm. and um i referred a lot to you know road names and where people lived yeah. and, and that kind of thing but um i do much less of that now much much less and i think i don't think people necessarily need to know um or want to read exactly you know where somebody lived in relation to somebody else Mm -hmm. is um unless it's part of the story um so i've cut that down a lot i mean the one or two i think in in the current book there was um there are a couple of roads in actually Linz um, on the Danube that Bruckner lived at. I made a couple of references to roads there because um, I needed to know you know where pe- where he lived for example in relation to the C- linz Cathedral because he was an organist there, mm-hmm. um, and that's a bit of the story part of the story. But so I've cut out and don't need now. I don't write things that are about travelling so much um, going from one place to another I mean if he starts off in Linz and ends up in Vienna he's got to get there somehow or other. I mean so yeah. you, so th- what's the point in going into a lot of detail about you know the journey from Linz to Vienna yeah I just I just say got you know he ride at Vienna station by train and so and so met him or something like that which, which is all you need to know really the reader doesn't Need, unless something happens on the train, of um, that's crucial to the story. Mm. For example, in it began in Florence. She goes from um, where where was it? Uh, some uh, a town in Germany, um, and um, travels through through Europe, and um, and that's quite crucial because she meets someone quite interesting on the train. Yeah. So that's part of the story. So, you know, that's quite important. But otherwise, you just, you know, what's the point?
0: Do you think you could kind of identify how you would have been different as a writer had you started earlier in life?
1: Well, um, in a way, I did start, in a way, because um, I was an official in the... I was a scientist in the Home Office, as you've gathered. Mm-hmm. And um, for a lot of the time, I, sp- I spent a lot of time in administration, about 12 years of my career, I suppose, to over 14. And <clears throat> at that time, the Home Office had some really bright people working for it, you know, really clever people you could massively respect. And one of them, a boss I had, his name actually was Neville Nagler. I'm sure you won't mind me mentioning his name on here. And he, he taught me so much about writing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd done a PhD. I'd written, written a lot of scientific papers and reports before I went there. So I thought when I was working for him, which was in race relations, actually, mm-hmm. I thought I knew how to write. And I learned so much about writing from him, um, how to be... Exact in what you're saying to get um, whatever you're saying over to say ministers in a crisp way Mm. so it's totally unambiguous and they can understand it in just one flick through and that is down to this guy Neville Nagler Mm. who ended up would you believe as a chief executive of the the Board of British Jews this guy so he ended up in a really powerful yeah and responsible position, yeah. So I owe a lot to Neville. Yeah, that sounds mm. a
0: very transferable skill in terms of what you were just talking about, of knowing what you can omit and what exactly right.
1: So yeah. in in other words, I kind of started writing when I was, um, I guess, in my thirties, in the Home Office, um, when I was drafting things like answers to parliamentary questions yeah. and briefings for ministers and things like that but i hadn't dreamt of writing a novel um or a biography or anything like that uh, i had no intention of doing so at the time mm. it was only once once i got to doing this a-level spanish um that um i became interested as a you know as a project for when i retired
0: um and i think we can move on to your three book selections one of which we've uh we've probably covered covered, haven't we um so what else have you have you brought for
1: well um there was a book there's a book called only a trillion by a character called Isaac Asimov Mm -hmm. who was a scientist and um and science fiction writer and um funny enough I I won that book as a school prize and that book um it's um it set me on the path to be, well, the two things that set me on the path to being a scientist. One of which was that book, mm-hmm. another was a science master at a school I went to. But that book is so, talks about so many different things in science. It's called Only a Trillion because um, there's an isotope of astatine called 215. And he says, you know, he gets all this evidence together that there are only a, only a trillion atoms of acetine-215 in the whole of the world. Wow. You know, this sort of <laughs> irrelevant, but yeah, fascin- yeah. fascinating Absolutely. but irrelevant fact <laughs> almost. And it, it just inspired me a bit, that book. Mm. Um, and um, it was, um, I thought it was a, a great book. I've still got it, and I, yeah. I, I, I don't often look at it. In fact, I can't remember the last time I looked at it. But it helped inspire me to become a scientist. Mm. Um, and I became a physicist. So yeah, so that was, and because it's kind of got a nuclear basis to it, I became a nu- I studied nuclear physics. Yeah, yeah.
0: Big influence
1: then. Yeah, big influence to me on me.
0: Um, and what about your third selection? The third
1: one is um, called the First Circle, and that's by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Uh huh. Um, and um, I found that a fascinating, if not horrifying, book because it's um, autobiographical and it's about how Solzhenitsyn spent time in various gulags in Mm. Russia and what these Russians did to him, you know. Yeah. um, They virtually starved him. He wrote that book on toilet paper, basically. Um, Scratched it on toilet paper. They, They nearly starved him to death. Because they regarded him as a rebel. Yeah. Um, And they stripped him of everything. And all they would leave him with was kind of a blanket of sort of half wrap himself with at night when it got really cold. And that's the sort of flavour of that book. What, In other words, what human beings can do to other human beings. Yeah. And um, I found that an 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 amazing book. Yeah. it's not a funny book, but it's a serious book, and it, it is just, um, it's frightening. And you think, how he, how that guy survived yeah. is incredible, you know? Detached from his family, detached from communication with anyone else, just all he had was prison guards. Yeah. who didn't want to speak to him anyway. I suppose
0: <laughs> the stories like that, the kind of other side of the coin, which is probably why they are appealing, is because of the kind of, the will of, Humanity, I suppose, that does Yeah, human push willpower from, yeah. that gets
1: comes through in the end. Yeah. And the sheer s- mental strength of the guy mm. is incredible. And of course, he's written a lot of books. Yeah. Um,
0: um, is that a theme that sort of man's inhumanity to man, I suppose, um, that you kind of revisit in your books? If you look well, at the, I the, did. the period yeah. of history that you have written about in the past.
1: I did revisit that in. Yeah. Um, in Expulsion, mm. which is my middle book, yeah, the, my third book, the story about Juan Hidalgo's father, yeah. who I made a spy whether he was or not. Mm-hmm. I think he could very well have been, and that inhumanity in was, you know, the the bitter cruelty that um, the King of Spain, Philip the Third, at the time, yeah, um, inflicted on the Muslims, yeah, um, and um, it was just horrific. You think, you know, just he was a weak man. And he was, he was again. That was a religious thing, really. I mean, it was the Roman Catholics in Spain, the Roman Catholic bishops who were dead against anything Muslim. Yeah, they tried to convert them into Christianity. Um, And um, they, they, in my view, and I think it's fairly clear that it was the Muslim. It was the Christians the Roman Catholics there Mm. that had the most negative influence on the king, which was taken up, actually, by one of his main advisers. And um, hence the inhumanity to man. Mm. Yeah, It was the first, as I said, it was the most hideous example of ethnic cleansing you could ever come across. I mean, these people, they expelled them to North Africa. They'd never been to North Africa. You know, the Muslims had occupied Spain... For some seven hundred yeah, years, and these course. people have been, you know, generation after generation after generation of Muslims who'd never been anywhere else other than Spain, and of course they ruled Spain for yeah. that period of time.
0: Don't feel like that's a, a historical episode that's really that well known now. It isn't well
1: known. No, it's.
0: I think people know that there were Muslims in Spain, and that there were Muslims in North Africa, but somewhere in between. How and why and when that? Changed.
1: No, I think That's you're nice. right. I think you're right. It's been it's it's vanished, has not it? Mm. I think virtually. Yeah. People don't recognise it as um, things that happen. You know it, that it happened. I mean, there was something like three hundred thousand of them. Yeah. A very large number, and many died. You know, as a, in crossing the Mediterranean, they mm. put them in these flimsy boats. And hundreds and thousands just drowned in the Mediterranean.
0: I suppose that's the power of writing books, that you can decide what to kind of highlight and shine a light on mm. things that maybe aren't yeah, forgotten about. Yeah, that's right. Um, final couple of, couple of questions. We, for part of the Sutton Steams Ahead program this year, we're looking at the crossover between art and science. Uh, Is that something that was um, And sort of the different ways you can interpret that um, In the period that you've mainly focused on In the Madrid series for example Is there much crossover between the two In that time from your understanding Or are they very separate worlds
1: Hmm. I think they're fairly separate Mm. To be honest Yeah um, the scientists and in, in those times were mainly confined to universities and um, some some areas of industry. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were fairly separated. Um, the only crossover, really, between if you like arts and science in those days occasionally when you've got it I mean a bit more in my latest novel actually with Bruckner Bruckner was a teacher Mm -hmm. started off as a teacher and he used to teach science um, and um, was a musician Mm -hmm. so that you know there's a crossover there between being um, an artist and a musician I mean I'm quite sure that one of the reasons Austria um, Mozart and you know people like Haydn um, became so famous as composers was that to be a teacher in those days if you taught physics if you taught math and Brookner used to teach physics and mathematics mm. as well as other subjects like geography um, but in order to be a teacher and to qualify a teacher, you had to qu- have a qualification in music so right, you had okay. to play a musical right. instrument of some sort and understand music <laughs> yeah so there was there was that sort of crossover yeah. more a bit more recently. That's in the sort of middle of the nineteenth right, century.
0: Yeah. Mm. Seems a question quite <clears throat> pertinent to yourself, given your previous career and and the fact that you're now writing. So, yeah, yeah,
1: I think you're right there. Actually, I mean, I can see, I can see connections, mm. um, and I can see. You know, there. I mean, there are direct links as well because of, I mean, the use of colours in paint. Mm. Um, people like Velasquez used to rely on, you know, um, ma- and a lot of them invented various chemical means of in- of co- making colour. Mm. And they, they were sort of relying on sort of, well, scientific techniques, if you like. Yeah. Um, so the there is a there is a kind of crossover and i think these days um one of the one of the um crucial things in um in the presentation of art of various kinds is technology mm. um because if if you go to see it like when we i mentioned this opera the um the wreckers of ethel smythe the technology there that that performance, you, you really had to look for it a bit because you know, no one wants to see a lot of technology yeah. when they go and see an opera. But it was obvious the lighting, the sound, um, the whole thing was you know, technology was massively involved, even in the, in the design of the um, the opera house, yeah. you know. So, technology and art meet in these situations where of performance mm, absolutely, and i think you know that's re- that's something that's come on massively in the last kind of 30 or 40 years you know move moving a stage uh, you know moving objects on the stage and mm. that kind of thing it's become much more scientific or technical much more technical much more reliable yeah. more professional so you know in those areas there's a huge of huge crossover i mean even for people like me you know you i don't write with a pen and ink i'm banging away at a a computer yeah so the technology the science has got these thing, this sort of stuff going yeah i mean and on the and i i use um the cloud i mean all my all my stuff is um this morning i what i did i load it up onto the cloud as soon as i finished so it's indestructible yeah and so you know
0: don't have to guard a manuscript with your no life no longer <laughs> anymore no and no. but the first
1: novel they didn't they, you couldn't use the cloud yeah. about, you know like 12 years ago i mean i guess if you could it was confined to you know very limited applications yeah, yeah. not in, not public um so you know it was a matter of you know protecting stuff and i print, had to print out to get the not my first novel approved i had to print out the whole manuscript and oh. give it to the publishers in a big box of paper like yeah. that, double spaced
0: big change in a yeah, short period so, of time. yeah that's right yeah. Mm. Uh, and I think probably a good place to end is uh, just to ask if you have any advice for anyone who is maybe considering starting writing particularly if they're maybe coming to it later in life and feel I don't know maybe intimidated by, by that fact, what would
1: you say to people in that position do it do it because if it's um i've i can't tell you how how much satisfaction i got out of being a writer Mm. i mean apart from actually the act of writing and creation you know the act of being a creator um well although i my novels tend to have a historical background not purely fiction except the emerald of burgos that was total fiction yeah. but it was ba- you know the, the things that happened in there like the siege of ostend mm-hmm. were factual um the march the march of the the spanish army up up through europe from from um, genoa to brussels that was factual but um no if anyone wants to write you, they will get an enormous amount of satisfaction out of writing um and um they say there's a book in everybody and i thought i totally Believe that, Mm. Um, and if anyone wants to write, I mean, if anyone wants to ask me about writing, I'd be more than pleased to speak to them about it. In fact, Um, I'm a member of a Rotary Club, and one of the guys at that Rotary Club was halfway through a novel when I went there, and I'm pretty sure that I inspired him to finish the thing off. Oh, really? And he's written another novel since, so he's now a novelist in his own right. Yeah. So. It you know, it um, if I can, I always say actually, if I can write a novel, so can you, because mm. I've never you know, it's not my profession by no, any no. means, never been my profession, um, and I've relied on people like you know, people like Stephen King, um, to pick up tips on how to do it, um, and um, I've just got on with it really one thing you do need and i th- and i'm grateful to my wife for this is a bit of a bit of support you know yeah not to, doesn't annoy my wife that i'm banging away <laughs> at the computer if it did it'd be slightly different story but no if someone wants to to write get on and do it find find something to do F- find a topic to write about write about your own life mm. um but definitely read what, on writing by stephen king that would be my key recommendation actually. yeah I mean there's a lot in that book that's not about writing because he it starts off starts off about an accident he had someone nearly killed him when they ran him over in a car thing. Um, but there's an enormous amount in it about writing the, the three things I said, you know um, and um, also it tells you about editing a book. Mm. so once you've written it, you can edit it. but if, if, if someone wants to write, do it because it's so satisfying and if you and there's nothing like seeing your the, the satisfaction i got from seeing my first book in print yeah was just staggering yeah. you know i thought you know i wrote this thing and another thing about it actually there's there's sort of a posterity effect because if you've written a book and got it into print um it's there forever mm. um and your book i mean the the satisfaction I've had out of people saying, hey, Gordon, I read that book. My goodness, that's a story, isn't it? Mm. You know, I really loved it. And only, another thing is, another thing, there's a guy at our golf club um, who, um, he'd never read a book in his life before. Oh, wow. And he read My Harpist of Madrid. And he said, do you know, I'm now a reader.
0: Wow. Hmm.
1: I read books now.
0: The highest compliment you could ever be. Couldn't do better, could you? Yeah.
1: No, amazing. I was really touched by that. Um, And um, that's another thing. If you write, you can, you know, the product of your labor is enjoyed by other people. And that's a really big thing and a a source of great satisfaction.
0: Thank you to Gordon for joining me on the show this week. We will be back next week with another guest from the world of writing. Uh, and I should add that the director whose name I forgot while butchering his quote about national cinema was, of course, Alexander Corder And I can heartily recommend uh, The Private Life of Henry VIII for anyone who hasn't seen it. This series is being released as part of the Sutton Steams Ahead programme. Uh, we have an exciting series of works and events to explore the relationship between art and science coming up across the next few months. You can still watch the short film We Dance for Life on Sutton Libraries Twitter and Facebook and we're looking forward to the Street Fair on the 1st of July which you can find out about at steamsahead.sutton.gov.uk. You can find out about upcoming events on the Sutton Cultural Services Eventbrite page and on our social media channels, Sutton Libraries on Instagram and Twitter and Sutton Libraries London on Facebook. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.